0: Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast, Episode 8 Gallipoli! Super 70 is a podcast meant to play along with the film we are discussing. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdellandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the initial DVD release of Gallipoli from 1999. Yes, I do know how to pronounce it. If you press play on that DVD now this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Paramount, a Gulf and Western company. You'll notice Rupert Murdoch actually has his name on this film. Rupert Murdoch is from Australia, and unfortunately his name is on too many things in this universe the opening script which is red is reminiscent of blood and the fact that it's using this very strange calligraphic font it, i don't want to call it german but it looks like the german subscript that was popular before the second world war the intention might have been to make it look somewhat Arabic, but even that would be wrong because the Turks don't speak Arabic. So I'm not exactly sure what the purpose of using that specific font for this was. Notice Wendy Weir was the design coordinator. She is who you think she should be. The opening, being the the black with the red lettering, really is meant to make you feel like this is a tragedy, and it is a tragedy. It's a coming of age story, which is not unknown in any genre of narrative storytelling. Playing the overture over the black opening. It really supposed to set the mood for the downer that this movie is. And really that's contrasted with the opening. Which is this guy preparing to run. Mark Lee. As Archie. And here we set the, the whole, you know, fast as a cheetah lost as a cheetah. And if, it, if the film had just opened with this open with the run open with this effectively him winning and then ruining his feet, um, but he won, right? You, you would get the, the impression that m- maybe this film is more lighthearted than it was meant to be. And you would be really surprised at the end of it when, when the tragedy does happen. Because we start with Mark Lee and we end with Mark Lee. So it's fitting that it's got the the long opener. May of 1915, we're going to get into the chronology of the First World War, fast as a leopard. on your mark, which is funny, because it's Mark Lee. So the opening credits being being black really is the correct mood for it. Now here we're running alongside him with a camera on a car for sure, and this coach is strangely dressed up like a sailor. So this is probably not the best idea I've had, but here it is. I'm going to drink a Foster's every 10 minutes until I pass out. And then I'm going to start drinking two every 10 minutes. And unlike most of my other podcasts, I don't actually have a script. I'm going to bullshit my way through this with a bunch of notes. On the flip side, uh, this is, I think, Peter Weir's shortest film. And to make things real interesting, I don't think that I've seen this film since 1990 or something. So... I haven't seen it before I pressed record, so this should be fascinating. Now, I am from Texas, and every time I watch this film, I am amazed at how similar Australia looks to Texas. And not just in looks, but in feel. Ranches, cattling, black cowboys who are the backbone of the cattle industry in this state for 100 years. Give him a wash.
1: So we've got racism here right off the bat.
2: Now, on the inside track, I just moved from Alberta
0: to Texas, and it's turned my life upside down. I felt like doing a Canadian movie, maybe like a Paul Gross, Marathon, Hyena Road, Dale, maybe switch to Good Cop, Bond Cop, or even Jesus of Montreal, but I just couldn't go there. And I'm not a real big David Cronenberg fan, so forgive me, I'm going to wing this one. If you hear a pause, it's either me drinking, trying to forget the fact that I've left a socialist paradise to a place where they drag African-Americans behind their trucks and use the word fag to describe something other than a cigarette. So I got the back bacon on. I've been listening to Rush all day. I'm wearing my free Newfoundland t-shirt. I have the CC and seven handy. And I'm ready to go totally nutso on another Commonwealth country. Australia. and I am late on this since the anniversary for Gallipoli is already passed I've missed it by a year I'm just like I missed lining up my Ghostbusters podcast with the new film by a couple of months and I missed the Back to the Future anniversary by a whole year I missed doing They Live until a week after the election when a week before should have done it but 2015 was the centenary of Gallipoli. I am a Gallipoli nut. I don't know why. I don't know Australians. I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. I'm not really a huge Mel Gibson fan or a Peter Weir fan, so
1: it's kind of strange. The film is effectively
0: divided into three very unequal acts. The first act is this Southwestern Australia. And then the second act is a shorter act in Cairo. And then the third act is going to be on Gallipoli and that's going to be the shortest one. So you're going to spend the majority of your time in Australia a minority of the time in Gallipoli only. I think the last 10 or 15 minutes is actually at Gallipoli itself. And that's, that's done on purpose because even though this is called Gallipoli, this movie isn't really about Gallipoli. It's about Australia. And where Australians fit in the world. Now, the, sh- the horse, I'm sure, has shoes on, right? It's got iron shoe horns on. I would imagine that it would. So why couldn't he wear shoes, right? I read a paper a very long time ago in a college far, far away about
2: dusty realism and someone had applied it to Peter Weir. And if you look at Peter Weir's films, you
0: know, even The Way Back, definitely Gallipoli, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock a little bit, But, you know, they're not clean films. They're not sanitized. They're very dirty. It does remind me of uh, Star Wars, right? And George Lucas's idea of used space as a guideline. And that'll be the entire film. And there's going to be filth coating everything. Australia looks like a very dirty place, very dusty. Cairo is going to look worse. And the only place that could conceivably be worse than Cairo is Turkey, Gallipoli itself. So let's get into the timeline a little bit. This is May 1915. So to give you an idea, the First World War started in August 1914, the famous Guns of August. If you want to read more on that, you should grab that book by Barbara Tuckman, which I believe won a Pulitzer Prize in the early 1960s. So to get into the Great War, you effectively have alliance systems all over the place. And you're effectively just waiting for something to set the alliance systems off against each other. I'm greatly simplifying it. And the spark that causes it is uh, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who's the heir to the throne of Austria. He's shot in Sarajevo in the summer of 1914, and the diplomacy to avoid a confrontation with Austria-Hungary fails. Germany issues Austria-Hungary a blank check to invade Serbia. Austria-Hungary invades Serbia. Russia invades Germany on behalf of their alliance with Serbia. But before any of that can happen... Germany executes the Schlieffen Plan, which is the invasion and occupation of France, which is stopped by the French army at the First Battle of the Marne. And by Christmas of 1914, everyone is pretty much in a stalemate. And that's what leads to battles like Gallipoli, interventions like the one in Thessaloniki in Greece, and the war truly expanding into a, a global conflict. Let them fall, Mowgli. Their only tears, so Mowgli sat and cried as though his heart would break and he'd never cried in all his life before. Now, he said, I will go to men. Now, uh, that's Kipling. That's from the Jungle Book. Why are we reading Kipling? Kipling was an, until probably about 30, 40 years ago. He was one of the most popular authors in the English language. I think he's probably been replaced by Hemingway in terms of good authors, classical authors, classical in the modern sense. The Jungle Book is, and Kipling is is seen to be this sort of patriarchal, slightly misogynistic, but mainly racist work by Kipling to reinforce the entire idea of the British Empire. And this film is is about the British Empire there, Gallipoli, their baptism of fire, splendid gallantry, magnificent achievement. And here's Archie first getting the idea of where the peninsula is. He actually points to Anzac Cove, which is where he'll be going because the battle is bigger, right? 29th of April. Here's the Gallipoli joke. And this is very good exposition, this railroad camp that kind of skips the entry of the war and goes right into the Australian mindset and the involvement. So this is uh not Mel Gibson's first film. But it's right up there. He plays Frank. He's on this rail gang and he is about as uninvolved as you can get he's not getting into the war he's not interested in the war he is very selfish in his mindset and that contrast to Archie who Archie is for the empire for Australia I'm going to make the world a better place and Frank doesn't believe in any of that So why does Frank join up? Very good question, if he holds those beliefs at the time. Now, the, the idea of these um, these runners, the two runners, actually comes from a, a real source in history. Because there were two runners who were very close to competing it, who competed together, who went to Gallipoli, and they both died there. And that was the genesis of the screenplay for this film. Leeds, 1899, world champion, 100 yards, so Archie's dad was a a runner himself. Now, Archie's going to uh, only go off for two days, so he says. But in fact, he's never coming back again. These are just beautiful shots of Australia here. And at this time, Australia is is not a colony. It is a commonwealth. It is a separate country, but it's very much in the, in the British setup. And I think it was uh, fairly recently in the 1970s, you could immigrate throughout the, the British Empire, what was left of the British Empire, and effectively keep your citizenship everywhere. And I know that was the case in Canada until about 1977. So you could actually, if you're in the UK, you can immigrate to Canada, or I believe to Australia, uh, and still keep your, your citizenship and become a citizen of that country. And it wasn't until the late 70s when they severed the, the knots. And mainly, the popular conception of Australia is is false. You know, here's here's Tipperary that they're playing in the background, and that's on purpose. That's a famous First World War song. If you listen to um, the First World War podcast, that opens up pretty much every episode. Pretty good podcast. I recommend that one. And I think there's about 12 episodes that break down the Battle of Gallipoli, which I recommend highly. Gallipoli being such a a good keyword, you should go into your podcast app and just enter Gallipoli as a search word and just start listening to everything that pops up.
2: James Cook found Australia in 1770 in Botany
0: Bay, for you Star Trek Wrath of Khan fans. He discovered New Zealand in the same trip. And for a long time, Australia was synonymous with the penal colony that was there. But there were other immigrants in Australia. Mel Gibson did some drama in Australia for a number of years until he was cast in Mad Max, which came out in 1979. He was also in Tim, which came out the same year. Mad Max hits the U.S. in... 1981, and Mad Max Fever takes place and a film that, uh, that he did previously called Attack Force Z was released to cash in on his stardom. Unfortunately, Attack Force Z isn't very good. It's him and Sam Neill. 1981 was also the release of The Road Warrior. And that, of course, came out the same year as Gallipoli. So he's got two credits in 79, three credits in 81. 1982, he does The Year of the Living Dangerously, which is a fantastic film, with Linda Hunt was nominated for. Best Supporting Actress, if I remember correctly, and when she actually played a, a man. And that pretty much got her the role in Dune. 1984 is when he starts getting noticed, really noticed, The Bounty, The River, Mrs. Sofal. 1985, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. But 1987 is the big year for him, Lethal Weapon. 88 is when he does Tequila Sunrise, and that's pretty much when his career takes off, is 87, 88. Frank and Archie here the the two runners so close the race was so close but Archie did it and again that's the basis of the film was this real story about these two real runners Peter Weir had an interesting career
2: leading up to this. Again, he did some drama. A lot of people think that his greatest film was Picnic at Hanging Rock, which came out in 1975. And
0: everyone loves that film but me. I think it's slow and boring, but what do I know? He also did The Year of Living Dangerously, 1982. Witness in 1985 with Harrison Ford. Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford, 1986. Dead Poet Society, 1989. Green Card, 1990, which is a horrible idea for a movie, much less executed the way that one is. Fearless, 1993. Truman Show, so two stinkers in a row. Master and Commander, 2000. Three is when he starts to get his mojo back and then the way back in 2010 which i honestly think is not just his best film but i think the way back is in probably the top 100 greatest films of all time the way back is phenomenal and if you look at his body of work A lot of people call it weird film, right? like a pun on his name, Peter Weir, weird film. Because occasionally you'll see things that, that doesn't make a lot of sense or it's not confusing, but things that you don't see in other movies. And it's shot in an unconventional style that you just may not catch on to right away it looks kind of normal at first and then you see kind of shots like that one of the to the back so they call it weird film and Gallipoli is probably the one that's most associated with this although Picnic of Hanging Rock again is the, the one that has most exposure Year of Living Dangerously
1: I think The Way Back has a lot of these weird moments. Now, if you want
2: to know everything there is to know about the Battle of Gallipoli, then you should check out
0: this author by the name of Charles Edwin Woodrow Bean, C.E.W. Bean. He wrote a 12-volume history of Australia in the war of eight of nineteen fourteen, nineteen eighteen. And he started this Anzac legend published in nineteen thirty five. And Bean died in nineteen sixty eight. Good day. Good day. Australia's fighting force faced its baptism of fire on the rocky slopes of Gallipoli and proved themselves heroes. Maybe, but they also proved themselves dead. Some people think that Peter Weir helped to define the rebirth of Australian cinema. I don't know about that because I don't know what it was before. So to call it a rebirth, I I don't know. Supposedly, he addressed some of the most pressing concerns that Australia had during this time, the 70s and 80s. And I wouldn't know about that either because I'm not from Australia and I'm not a historian who focuses on it. But he does have these intriguing images of Australia. They're very evocative, they're transcendent. And people remember them, these compelling visions. And eventually he he took that knowledge base and went to Hollywood. So the scene of the train where they're going to hop the train to go enlist somewhere else because Archie's underage. It's a smattering of light, the light in, the light out, and it's supposed to mimic the artillery fire. Here the boys are off. And they're on their way to lose their innocence, to lose their youth, to lose their potential, to find out how futile war is,
2: what war costs. And apparently this was a big
1: hit in Australia. Come on mate, we're here
0: so there's a there's a whole thing around mates and mateship and matehood. what's it like to
2: to be a mate to have a mate to Do all those things
1: To call someone mate. it's more than just
2: to say someone's your friend, to call someone a bloke. It's the way that you
0: use the word, right? And Gallipoli pretty much shows this, this mateship going on. So here's a something that I found kind of I don't know, this is right out of Lawrence of Arabia for me, right? 50 miles. So theoretically, if they can walk 25 miles a day, which is possible because Caesar did it, then they could get to where they're going in two days, the end of the second day. Maybe, you know, if you slack off a bit, you can make it in the third.
2: But going across this desert when it's hot and everything, you're going to have to walk 18, 20 hours a day.
0: So it does look like it's, I mean, right out of Lawrence of Arabia, right? The blue horizon. There's a curvature on the lens that they must be fighting against because if you look at the land, it looks completely straight across. It doesn't look bowed at all. And Weir has these elements that he uses Some would call them experimental. Like, I don't think that this shot is experimental. I think that it's ripped off from Lawrence of Arabia. And anyway, I don't know if if they are experimental. I don't know if you could call them that. but you could call them different. They're shot differently. I don't know if this shot is done out of a helicopter or what, but I mean, that's an original shot. And this is kind of reminds me of the way back when they're going across the desert. I think they're in Mongolia. And here, even look at that, where you've got the footprints leading right up to where they are. So here's Archie and Frank arguing. You got to get in it. I'm not getting in it. And remember, this is still in the days of the feathers. People going around handing out feathers. And Archie is using the extra time that they have hiking and walking across the flats here is time to talk him into going to the war. It's an English war. It's not our concern. Then he calls him a coward. Now, I remember Frank descends from the Irish, right? So the Irish fighting for anything to do with the British Empire, that comes into more of a play later, I think, when they're in Perth. Frank's having a conversation with his dad. And if there's one thing that I would say that Weir defies as far as his filmmaking is concerned, like what would you put Gallipoli in in terms of a genre or any of Peter Weir's films for that matter? What would they fit? Where does The Year of Living Dangerously fit in terms of a genre or The Way Back? Master and Commander is maybe the one that fits best right like that's an epic that's a spectacle that's a huge budget spectacular film but gallipoli is not that it doesn't most of his films do not fit into a genre All of them deal with conflict. Most of them deal with loss, grief, confusion, spiritual awakening. That's just amazing where you see that they're walking around in circles. Here's a dry well. Then finally, it comes to him. What's going on? They're running as fast as they can. Why are they running through the desert? Because it looks dramatic. That's why they've got to catch up to the guy with the mule caravan. If you look at Mel Gibson's body of work, if you look at his acting style, I should say, you know, he's got this, um, you saw it there when he's running, it's kind of the flailing of the arms type of thing. And he, the way that he holds himself, the way that he, throws his arms around his his gate it's it's pretty consistent film to film i would say the one that breaks it the most is uh the man without a face (laughs) see how did the war start? Well, I don't know. Well, most people didn't know how the war started back then, so that's okay. It's just just kind of happened. And what is Australia doing in this war? Turkey is Germany's ally. What's How did that happen? You you get into all of these these arguments of why did the war start? Why is Australia in the war? Why is America in the war? Um Eric Larson wrote a really good book about that On when he did uh, the Lusitania. I would recommend Gordon Martell's Origins of the First World War. That's a pretty good book. I'm not going to go into that. But basically, he he bottled it down to oil. And the famous idea of a, a Berlin to Baghdad railway, right? So... In a, in a global sense of what's going on is the world is being quickly divided between Britain and Britain's allies and then everybody else. And everybody else is very much a polyglot of people who are not really allies. They're just in the same boat and the leader of everybody else for lack of a better word is germany and germany wants to compete on the same level as britain they want to fleet the german high seas fleet they want to build up a colonial empire like britain is building this guy on the left looks like Prince Charles. See, look at this very strange shot sculpted here. Most people, when they do period pieces like this, when they want to line people up, they, they want them to make them look like a painting. Weir's not interested in that. The light horse sounds like the worst idea, I think, that I've ever heard. Everyone's expecting them to do X, Y, and Z. So, if Germany's going to compete with Britain and her allies, then it it needs a fleet that it can manage it. This is the days before airplanes, of course. So that means that they're going to have to have a, an enormous fleet to expand their colonial empire and to keep the colonies that they've gotten. That means that they're going to need a lot of oil. And the British fleet had already moved oil pretty much by the outbreak of war. And Winston Churchill was the first lord of the admiralty, so he was the guy who was pretty much instrumental in making that decision, moving them to, to oil. So the importance of oil became huge. So Germany, in effect, was, was trying to do that, was trying to lock down an empire, trying to lock down oil reserves to keep the empire. And in effect, that's the bigger reason, the underlying reason as to why the war broke out. And then, of course, what is... What is going on with Turkey? You know, that's far more complex, I guess. Look at this amazing shot where you can actually see the coal in the coal car. This crane is just earth-shattering. Look at all the hats. Everybody wore hats back then. Everyone's got their head covered. And then the way that it tracks back... It finds Archie, then pulls him back, lets him pass. That was an amazing shot. And Weir will do that to you. He'll have a whole bunch of boring stuff followed by one or two shots of stuff that's just mind-boggling. Like those shots in the desert were just so well done, Right? Now, Turkey had very recently undergone a, an internal revolution. Or the Ottoman Empire, I should say. It wasn't Turkey yet. They had forged this relationship with Britain, which they had basically rejected. I never understood this whole let's give him a mustache thing. That looks like crap. Just grow a real mustache. This film is fascinating. The English murdered your grandfather. Hung him up with his own belt at the crossroads, five miles from Dublin. See? Not fighting for the empire. I'm going to keep my head down. Well, good luck with that in Gallipoli. So Turkey aligned with Germany. Turkey gets into this whole Berlin to Baghdad pipeline idea. The railway, I should say. wasn't really a pipeline. And it never really came to fruition. And the Turks cut off the Dardanelles from any traffic going to Russia through the Black Sea. Russia, of course, was allied with Britain and France. So the immediate impact to Russia after the army failed in the field was really, really bad. Like something like 90% of Russia's grain and 50% of her exports moved through the Dardanelles. And so that was over. Archangel, which is the Russian port, which is east of Finland, that froze in the winter. And the Kaiser's fleet sealed off the Baltic Sea, access to St. Petersburg. So the only way to get in and out of Russia was Vladivostok. And that was 5,000 miles away from Moscow. So it seemed even from the start, like Russia was going to be fighting a really uphill battle. So... Closing the Dardanelles was by itself an act of war, and that involved Britain and France because they relied on Ukrainian grain to feed the troops on the Western Front, okay? And U-boats were sinking everything that was coming across the North Atlantic. Everything is a general term, I know. So the Dardanelles was governed by the Ottoman Empire, well, Turkey, but it was regulated by an international commission. And when it was closed that violated all these laws of international shipping. So closing the straits was an act of war. So here the, uh, the stiff upper lip of the British being conveyed onto the Australians. And you'll, you'll see this among the officer class. Weir's Really good at conveying, okay, well, the officer class of the Australians, they're going to model themselves after the Brits, and Weir sees this as a bad thing, although I don't know what choice they have. And Australia was different than, say, Canada, where the Canadians, up until the 1950s, the Canadians felt very comfortable integrating their army with with the British army. To the point where Canadians and Brits served, I mean, completely side by side, completely intermingled. Now, when it comes to the Dardanelles, the idea actually came as a result of the, a request from the Grand Duke of Russia on uh, Nicholas Romanov, who was the uncle, I believe, of the Tsar. So he asked for help, and then Lord Kitchener, the British Secretary of State for War, he was a legend by this time. He initially was the guy who came to the war council that was running the war for Great Britain and saying, we've got to do something to help Russia. We've got to reduce pressure on Russian forces fighting or or they're going to drop out of the war. And that's, you know, we can't have that. They're tying down too many troops. So the Grand Duke did not specifically indicate that Gallipoli would be something to do, but the Brits had to do had to do something. And that's where history now is really complex. And I I think most of it is, it it gets it wrong. And I don't want to go deep into this as we're in this very neat car going up to the ship, but the streamers and everything's we are coming right. Which is a huge, there's an Australian flag, the proto Australian flag. And a a night shot.
1: It makes you wonder, why why did he film this at night? So he's going
2: to be the... Australian is going to be looking after these troops. So...
0: So here's where history gets kind of muddled where everyone pretty much blames Winston Churchill for pushing this Gallipoli idea as we need to go to Gallipoli and relieve the stress off of Russia. But you know, it really was an idea that Kitchener had pressed at first in a very limited sense. And then Churchill basically took the mantle and ran with it. So it's not that he doesn't deserve to skirt all of the blame. It doesn't deserve all the blame either. So Kitchener told the war council and Churchill was on the Lord council, right? With Jackie Fisher, who's this really famous former sea lord of the Admiralty, this famous personality who came out of retirement to advise on these naval matters. And the and the idea was from Kitchener, well, you know, a naval Navy-only action, a Navy-only operation. No troops are available. So let me paraphrase that. Kitchener told Churchill that any naval operation in the Dardanelles would have to be executed without land troops because Kitchener believed that Gallipoli should be a subsidiary expedition which should not jeopardize the Allied effort in France. Now, this isn't very surprising because... Churchill's not in charge of the army. Churchill's in charge of the Navy. So telling Churchill to do a Navy-only option, that makes complete sense because Churchill doesn't have an army to throw to the Dardanelles because that's not his department. But after Kitchener makes this decision... The War Council as a whole, and Churchill included, make a series of very catastrophic decisions that just completely dooms the Australian effort and, and the whole effort in the Dardanelles. So, this evolution came up, uh, this ad hoc, there's no real plan, right? Churchill asks this admiral named Carden, Can we open the Dardanelles? I see only. Cardin says, yes. Churchill tells the war council, we can do it. And Churchill sends Cardin in January, you know, go ahead and try to open it up. So Fisher, of course, said that he thought the troops should be used and he threatened to resign, but he didn't resign. And Fisher caved stayed on the war council the navy only was a go they had some ideas so let's take some some troops and pull them from here and put them there and they said no no navy only so this is giza I'm going to tell you a couple of things about Giza. That's in case you've never been there. You don't know. Giza is not out in the middle of the desert. Giza is a suburb of Cairo, which is pretty much surrounded on all sides by endless city that just sprawls and sprawls. Cairo is huge. Cairo is just absolutely enormous. And I was there before the, the revolution. So, um, 2005, 2006, 2007 I was in Egypt working and I would have vacation days here and there and a couple of those days I went off to see the pyramids and I was you know absolutely stunned like everybody But the idea that they're encamping by the the pyramids is kind of, it's kind of absurd. Obviously, they're shooting there, but it's it's really, it's not like uh, you're in the middle of the desert. You're not in the middle of the desert. You're in the middle of a city. And shirt shot of the Sphinx. now this is fairly insensitive portrayal of arabs which are marginalized in this movie and turks are marginalized too and this is a movie that unfortunately pushes the other you can see that they're even they're even kind of laughing about it the VD talk that he gives here. Horribly painful, difficult to cure. Embarrassing questions at home. So it doesn't paint Arabs in a particularly good light. And it doesn't uh, paint Turks in a particularly good light, or Muslims for that matter. And by all accounts, the Turks were well-respected by the, the Australian troops. The Anzacs really, really held the Turks in high regard as fighting men. Now here you've got the Australians with this trademark turned up hat where the brim of the hat on one side is is curled up. And I'm not sure if there's an outback reason for that, but that was definitely the style. The chin strap around the throat. And that's in great contrast to, say, the the Brits. The Brits don't have this sort of planes hat. It's five piastres, two piastres. I mean, nothing's changed. When I was in Cairo, it seemed like everybody had something to sell. So here are the the Brits going by, right? And I remember Frank is an Irishman. And these Brits are, you know, you will treat me with respect. You will treat the the officer of the empire with respect. And Frank doesn't want to salute him. So we'll just let those pleated bastards go. So here comes Gibson on the horse with the, the monocle. I say, Carruthers, there are some chaps that way. It's because he's got the monocle in. And I always found this kind of strange because I never associated the monocle with with English officer class or riding jackasses instead of horses, right? Wait until you meet the New Zealanders. Tally-ho, tally-ho. If England needs a hand, well, here it is. England has always needed a hand in any of its wars that it's ever fought against anyone. England used Irish conscripts to conquer Scotland. And it used everybody to conquer Wales, it used prisoners to conquer Australia. So here's what I mean when it doesn't particularly make Arabs look very appeasing or appetizing or selling these pictures. That's more than these guys have ever seen. Why is the donkey laughing? That's why the donkey's laughing. Life is cheap and the women have no respect for themselves. It's the same in most foreign places. So that's, I wouldn't say that's a very original outlook. I think that's, that's every place that people think of themselves. Being Americans, we think our country is the greatest and life is cheap in other places. And it reminds me of that short scene in Peter Davis's Hearts and Minds when he has an interview with general westmoreland during the vietnam war or actually he's retired it's after the vietnam war westmoreland's talking about well life is cheap you know to to the to the asian or to the to the vietnamese person life is very cheap and then he cuts to a village that b52 bombers are just erasing from the earth so to whom is life very cheap so these conceptions of how other cultures are, what other cultures are, why other cultures are the way they are. It doesn't make Australians look very good. And here's this guy, who's just trying to make a living, and they go in there and and they hassle him. Now, in all likelihood, this guy could have sold the same forged piece or passed off piece of antiquity to someone else and they're they're up in arms about it it's not we find out later that's not the same store. it's a different store he doesn't successfully tell his friends hey i didn't i didn't buy that ripoff piece from here i bought it from this other place over there i bought this in another shop and i paid five shillings for it whereas my friend mr wilson bought this from you it's the same damn piece You know, if you don't want to get ripped off as a gringo overseas, then don't go overseas. If you don't want to get ripped off while shopping for stuff in Africa, then don't go to Africa. Or China or anywhere for that matter, right? Like in China, we had a saying when I was there, you know, white man's price, Chinese price. If you could get it somewhere in the middle, you'd be doing good. But, you know, why... Why be a dick about it? So they're gonna trash this place. Doesn't doesn't particularly make them look very good. Again, othering, right? The dumb Arab, the stupid Arab. That guy's probably not even an Arab, that actor is probably an Australian name. He's working in the Arab version of Tanface. And you see he throws the Fez back into the shop, right? The Egyptians don't even wear fezes, right? It's a Turk thing. This is it here. It was the wrong shop. Hey, fellas, come back. Yeah, no, they're gone. See, they're dealing pornography here on the street. And then one Australian steals it and runs off. See, so here's the bordello. And while we're talking, while we're watching nasty things like the Bordello, we'll go ahead and go back into politics, because that, after all, is that's what politics is, is one big whorehouse. So the War Cabinet refused to send troops. Churchill tried to get Marines there. Locations changed. Plans changed. Church... Kitchener tells Churchill, yes, you can, uh, we'll send some army there. Then he reneges on that. Things things change week to week. And then retrospectively, Churchill makes this huge mistake. He bombards the Dardanelles in November and then again in February. Then there's a, a push in March to open them. And the land expedition would go on April 26th, so it, it just seemed like there was this lead-up to the invasion that the Turks obviously knew about. Look, they're, they're shelling Gallipoli. They're trying to come up Gallipoli with, with naval power. Obviously, they're going to land an army here. And that putting that army together and landing it on the Hellespont, which is the tip of the Gallipoli Peninsula, that was really like a last minute. thing. They really, really threw that together last minute to the, to the point to where when they finally got to Gallipoli, you know, the the ships were packed wrong, right? Like the ammunition was on the bottom and the sleeping bags were on the top type of thing. And then had to be sent back and unpacked and repacked. It was flipping crazy. So this is one of those amazing shots that we're is is really trying to go with this grand vision, this sort of, again, Lawrence of Arabia type of shots. And I don't think that he's pulling it off. You really fall short. Like, look, he's shooting this guy up against the sky. It's a very cheap way of doing something in a studio and you don't have to shoot them on location. So what is the invasion force supposed to accomplish? Why, Why now, now that we're trying to, uh, we, we know what we're trying to do. We're trying to help Russia. We're trying to open the Dardanelles near the Gallipoli Peninsula. So what are the ultimate goals? Well, there's, there's lots of them, right? The first one was to open the Dardanelles, of course. We already said that. The second is to control the Sea of Mamara, which is the body of water in between Constantinople and the Aegean Sea. Right, and from there the the navy could shell munitions factories, the Ministry of War, lots of lots of government buildings in Constantinople, the bridges to Galata, which is across the Golden Horn. Then they could occupy Constantinople. That that would be a goal. That would knock Turkey out of the war. Supposedly, the fourth was to disrupt the Berlin to Baghdad railway which was carrying crude from the Middle East fields to refineries in Germany. Then they would open the Bosporus Straits just to the north of Constantinople, and that would open aid to Russia. So if they could use the momentum of that success to force the Balkan nations to quit the war at the minimum, or then maybe join the Entente, that would be great. They could liberate Serbia And then they could push through the Balkans and put some pressure on Austria-Hungary. And that would include helping Serbia, which is what Russia wants to do all along. So you read all of that and what they're supposed to accomplish, and that just sounds impossible. That's an impossible list of of objectives to achieve. Oh, we're mates, sir. Oh, this is supposed to be warfare. That goes back to the mateship. Here the Australians are rolling around. Oh, they look very enthusiastic. So here's the Australian officer, English officer. They're not impressed.
2: Break it up. As a field exercise, this is pretty bad. And
0: it's choreographed badly as well. Kind of get the idea that Weird doesn't really know exactly how to do this or what to do. Like taking the, the idea off the page. Not so easy. Cairo, nine miles. Uh, You're in Cairo. This is a great shot. right down the street, palm trees in the background. Of course, I rarely saw palms when I was in Cairo. So here they go, fast as a cheetah. And this is gonna uh, mimic the trench run, which you'll see later. All the way out to the open desert, which we all already said we know that it's not open. One of the most famous messengers who ran trenches in the Great War was Adolf Hitler. And there's a debate now whether or not he was a good messenger or a regular messenger or bad messenger. By the way, to climb the pyramids now, they used to ban it for a while, but now you can actually pay money and climb it. They don't let just anybody climb it anymore. Graffiti from Napoleon, Frank and Archie. Australian Expeditionary Force. Nope. AIF, Imperial Force. I apologize, you Aussies and New Zealanders. So here they're trying to serve together. So the, the push to open the Dardanelles, it didn't work out. Mines took out most of the ships. That was in March 1915. The element of surprise was gone. Turkey knows now that where they're going to be invaded, so they asked Germany for help. Germany sends advisors, they send artillery. The Turks start fortifying the peninsula. Hundreds of German argue, army regulars and officers are sent to support the Turks. They send down General Lehman von Sanders to help put this unit together, this Turkish unit that's going to fight off the invasion which they know is coming. Turkey was being funded by like 100,000 Deutschmarks a month by the time the landing happens in April of 1915. Churchill fires that Admiral Cardin who failed to open it up, the Dardanelles. Plans change, plans change again. So here his friends don't like the fact that he's moving from the infantry to the light horse, even though where they're going, there's not going to be any light horse. There'll be no horses on Gallipoli. He's got his riding crop now, and I'm going to talk to the ladies. Ladies. So the invasion happens on the 25th of April, 1915, which is not portrayed in this movie. You don't see the initial invasion. Look at this interesting shot here. And and again, it's weird, tries to copy a lot of these tropes of old Hollywood. This looks like something out of Grand Hotel from 1936. Looks kind of like the coconut grove. Palm trees on the inside of the hotel. And this is actually is a pretty long take if you saw that that went on for almost a minute. Notice the statue here in the background which is slightly racist. He's going to bluff his way through. Message for Major Hamilton. So the invasion happens, everything quickly goes to shit. And as the battle goes on, everything is in short supplies, right? Two thirds of all the water had to be shipped in. This guy named Ian Hamilton, he was leading the army. But it was Churchill who had to feed and clothe it, right? And you're talking like 80 tons a day of water had to be shipped in and that wasn't enough. So they had to ration each soldier, to one canteen of water a day. And the Turks had problems too, but they seemed really insignificant compared to what the Anzacs were facing. The Allies as a whole. Eventually, Hamilton was fired and he never served in the field again. They tried to figure out, you know, what do we do about Gallipoli? And Kitchener finally went to Gallipoli in late 1915. They get together and they, they decide, well, we're just going to pull out. So by, by Christmas of 1915, they, they pull out of Gallipoli. They abandon the entire enterprise. And it was something like half, like your chances of getting killed or wounded or missing in Gallipoli was half. Those are horrible odds. 50% casualty rate, horrible odds. Now here are these, the ticker tape scene, the confetti scene. I mean, this is right out of, I mean, a lot of, even I dare say Marilyn Monroe type of films in the 50s. like Some like it hot. These hotel parties that you would see. It's like Weir's studied Hollywood, but it's like either he doesn't have the budget to pull it off or he's kind of deliberately making a soft copy of what he's seen in the past. the night boat, the searchlight. So Gallipoli destroyed Churchill's reputation, but Kitchener managed to, to keep his, but probably at the cost of his life, right? Like he, Kitchener went to Russia to discuss the military situation with the Grand Duke and his ship that he was on, the HMS Hampshire it was struck by a mine off the coast of the Orkney Islands. So because Kitchener did not survive the war, it's seen as, it saved his reputation. So here's the first shot that we have of Anzac Cove. Now I remember that there are several beaches on Gallipoli, right? X beach, Y beach, W beach, and the Brits are on a couple of those beaches. The French are on two of them. One is on Gallipoli and then one is on the mainland, or I should say the Asian side of the Dardanelles. And then further up the western coast of Gallipoli, or I should say the northern coast of the of the peninsula, is Anzac Cove. So Anzac, I know it's a little late, an hour and whatever, 15 minutes into the film, but Anzac stands for Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. So the geographical location where they dropped them off the beach was a cove that jutted into the Aegean Sea so they they called it Anzac Cove because that was the sector where the Australians and New Zealanders were and there was a battalion of Newfoundlanders that were there So by all accounts, this everything that I've read by Gallipoli, and if you ever get a chance, you should read Alan Moorhead's book on Gallipoli or Bean's book on it. All of this looks rather accurate as far as everything that I've read. And sandbags pretty much only up to the shoulders, where if, if you're on the western front, you know those sandbags would go way past your head. constantly looking for firewood there's no wood on Gallipoli look at this amazing pull out over the beach and there was no safe place the signals out to the ships with the flags that really happened because they were so close to the ship's This is another thing that they would do which is in uh, Moorhead's book which is which is if you if you went out to go take a bath in the sea you would throw in some change into a hat and it was like paying into a lottery and if you if you got caught by a shell if you got hit or nicked That's one of the boats from the invasion fleet sunk, right? Wouldn't be the only time that you see Mel Gibson's butt in a movie. But if you got nicked by the artillery shell, then you won the lottery. must have taken them forever to shoot this. There you go. Hey, look at me. So I don't know why they're carrying him. His hand is bleeding, not his... Not his leg. So he's on the canteen run. This is another thing that happened. constantly trying to fill up the water (laughs) hello australia the turks were were really close and that's another thing that was different from the western front to to gallipoli the turks were extraordinarily close to the point to where the two sides could hear each other uh, talking in the trenches. Whereas on the Western Front, the Germans and the Brits, or the Germans and the Americans, or the Germans and the French, they, they were usually very far apart. Like, it, it, in some cases, hundreds of meters apart. And it just wasn't possible, really, to, to hear one or the other Unless there was a very loud general commotion. But that wasn't the case at Gallipoli. They were so, so close. In some cases, the trenches of one lined up with the trenches of the other. And I know during the oh God, that's the bodies in in the wall itself, right? Like I, I had heard that, you know, I had heard, I had read that the bodies were used to create the walls that you use to defend yourself in the battle. So the bodies were in the trenches themselves. And there was no safe place on Gallipoli at all. Here they are just using shrapnel to make handmade grenades to send over. Because they had they had so much trash. The trash problem on Gallipoli was unbelievable. They couldn't get all the trash off all the consumables. They And when they had abandoned it, they just left it there. And all that junk largely is still there. Even 100 years later, bringing all this crap onto the beach to support the army. Notice Gibson looks a little bit more red, like he's sunburned. So here's a captured Turk. Oh, check that out of Mauser. Crikey. Horrible, horrible conditions. And the finale of the movie, now that we're in the third act, you've got about 30 minutes to go, I suspect. The finale is going to be the landing at Suvla Bay. So the battle went on for months. There was very incremental gains by the Brits and the French in the South, and then by the Australians and the New Zealanders on the north side of the island. But they were just inching, and it was just costing lives and costing lives and costing lives. They just could not get an edge up. They, they could not find that breakthrough. Just It just stagnated just like the Western Front did. It was just a complete
2: repeat. And so the the
0: solution was, and I don't remember if it was Birdwood or Hamilton who came up with it, but the solution was, well, let's let's do a left hook, let's do a left flank around an amphibious landing way up the peninsula at a, a bay called Suvla, Suvla Bay. And we're going to land uh, a fresh division up at Suvla. I think it was 25,000 British troops. And at the same time, the Australians are going to launch an attack at the worst spot on Anzac Cove, which is called the Neck, N-E-K. And the Neck was just absolutely the worst place. Now, every Everywhere on Gallipoli was pre-sided with artillery shells. So it didn't matter where you were on Gallipoli, you could get hit by one or the other, right? The Turks knew where everybody was on the beach, and the Brits and the Australians knew where all the Turks were. So the idea that you could hide, that wasn't an idea at all. And here he's talking, and we're going to be in Constantinople in a week, then we're going to knock Turkey out of the war. And that's just complete nonsense, absolute nonsense, wishful thinking. So the landing of Suvla happened. And when it was executed, it, it was just too slow. And then the Australians, they pushed at the neck and they all died for nothing. They couldn't, there were no gains or they are negligible to gains, I would say. Were they drinking tea on the beach? Possibly. And the, the day of the ANZAC invasion, there were Australian troops that were actually walking through the town of Corinthia, which is like midway through the peninsula. And they had walked back to report, hey, there's nobody out there, but the They didn't rush up troops and take it. And then something like 20,000 Australians had died just trying to get to that point. Gallipoli as as a military feat is really important because it shaped the idea of amphibian warfare. During the Spanish Civil War, Franco had landed his Republican force at Malaga, and he he kept that in his mind, Gallipoli, right? Get him off the beach, get him off the beach. Gallipoli informed D-Day and hundreds of Pacific landings, which was like pulling off a D-Day every two months for the last two years of the Second World War. Everyone had it in their mind because they didn't want it to turn into another Gallipoli. It was that bad. And Gallipoli stained the Australian view of serving the empire. If you ever get a chance to read Churchill's six-volume history of the Second World War, I would recommend it. He describes pulling, pulling the Australians out of this really important battle in North Africa at the request of the Australian parliament so that they could go defend the home country after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He sent them to Singapore and the Australians actually cried foul. They wanted them to come all the way home, even though everybody knew that the Japanese could not invade Australia. If they, if they tried, they had no plans to do it. So, so the Australians went to Papua New Guinea, and the Americans Arguably had a tougher time fighting the Pacific than the Australians did. And if the Australians had stayed in North Africa, they would probably have had an easier time than fighting the Japanese. So it's, it's fairly accepted that the Pacific War was more brutal than the European one. Even on the Eastern Front, with the exception of the entire, you know, extraterritorial war. Genocide that was going on. The Japanese had no means to invade Australia. They had no plans to invade the mainland. Sydney's almost as far as Tokyo as San Francisco is. So. But the Australians, you know, they went to Vietnam, which they don't they don't want to talk about now. But they were there. And the modern conception of Gallipoli is only Australia, but you know. That's corner politics, right? It's, they leave out New Zealand all the time. I'm leaving out New Zealand, even though ANZAC includes New Zealand. So this is the first mate to buy the farm. So here's the emotional impact of, okay, I'll tell your parents. the tough life fighting in Anzac. So the entire New Zealand thing, there's a lot of bad blood because of Gallipoli and the New Zealand contribution not being really highlighted enough. So this film is only one point of view. It's a valid point of view, but it's only one. There were French at Gallipoli across the Straits at Kumkale. There were Newfoundlanders at Gallipoli who later went on to the Somme and 95% of them were killed in 20 minutes. There were some Canadians there, not Newfoundlanders, but mainland Canadians because Newfoundland did not become a province of Canada until 1949. There's another film about Gallipoli that Russell Crowe directed and starred in called The Diviner. It's really boring, but it's good. He's not much of a director. He needs more practice. But I wouldn't pass that one up. sharpening the blade the fact is the whole involvement there mimics the ending of the film right gallipoli was an idiotic idea cooked up by too many smart people and
1: executed by too many idiots and the cost was very high I
2: think half of all Australians killed in the war in its entire history
0: were killed at Gallipoli. And what did it do? It changed nothing, absolutely nothing. And it's the very essence of waste. It's the prime example of a war not worth fighting. Australia got nothing out of Gallipoli and they got nothing out of the First World War except for the feeling that perhaps they didn't want to be part of this global order and the new zealanders they even got less right they really got fucked because not only did they go and die just like the australians did but now most of the world doesn't even know that new zealand was there that the nz and anzac stands for new zealand and the country they bled with the country they bled for shits on them by ignoring their contribution and here now i hear that uh New Zealanders can't go back and forth to Australia like they used to. Now, one of the best things that I've heard the past 15 years is if you had the ring of power, what would you do with it? And I'd like to think that I'm a big humanitarian and I'd feed the hungry, take care of all the kids being maimed and murdered in Syria right now. Stuff like that. What would New Zealand do? Considering some New Zealanders have a worse opinion of Australia than they do of China or some terrorist organizations. But if New Zealand had the ring of power, they'd probably push Australia about as far away from them as possible. So it's a myth that they're the same country. It's a myth that they're even together Lots of myths, there's myth of the runners, Archie and Frank. It's not wrong. It's not the only myth by far. What we need are more films about Gallipoli. We need more films about the French, about the New Zealanders, about the Newfoundlanders, even the Turks, especially the Turks. They need to understand their history now more than ever, I think. So Frank and Archie are separated. Fix bayonets. First wave. So here's the the blow-by-blow that's going to go on. It's a very methodical process that we are is going to give you in a very strict chronological order starting with the bombardment which at this time bombardments are only a tip off bombardments are an advertisement It's like hanging a big neon sign above the trench saying we're coming. The minute the bombardment stops, they're supposed to go over the top. See, their watches are off. And it's just as simple. They should have just jumped out of the trench, but there's the communication issue. It's just mind-boggling to me. See, here they are getting back into the trenches. They should have just gone up and gone over, but their instructions are not precise. Nothing is precise. And the portrayal here of of the Australian officer in the trench knows more about what's going on than the stiff-ass Brit who's safe in his bunker calling the shots. That's a very common conception of what's going on in the British Empire, not just from an Australian viewpoint, but from a Commonwealth viewpoint. So they're going to go over the top, and they're going to get mowed down. Oh, my God, that stunt guy just went... Completely back. There goes another one. They're not making it a few yards. They're getting mowed down by the Maxim guns provided by the Germans. Come on, lads. Crawl back. Now, why... In God's green earth, if God exists, would you follow something like that?
1: Second wave, get ready. So the Turks got up
2: out of the trench to take a knee.
0: Unless he's killed immediately. God, some of these bursts are horrible to even look at. And Frank basically knows that Archie's in what? He's in the third wave or the fourth wave. He knows that Archie's going to get it next wave. All these guys are just... That's the third yeah, third wave take position. And this is when the, the Australian officer, he's like, I'm, I'm not doing this again. And for some stupid reason, this guy says, oh, there was a report that one of our marker flags was seen in the enemy trench and that's why why does he even say stupid shit like that it just makes you wonder what what is going on but there's there is this need to impress your leader there is this need to maybe you lie to pad to comfort to push what your leader wants to hear in a hierarchical sense and this goes down from the very basic trench operation that's happening here To the highest form of government service, which is everyone telling George Bush, yes, there's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We can prove it. They're absolutely there. Even if you know that it may not be true, you know that that's what your boss wants you to hear. So you're going to keep perpetuating that lie. So even though everyone in the theater is sighing it's actually a very real condition the attack must proceed at all costs what what is all costs here how many more men have to die And that's when Frank says, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to go over his head. Somebody has to do something. And here the Turks are having such a good success that they're emboldened. At least here they're not faceless. And the other is limited to such an extent in the final scene.
1: But it's still not enough. Moving
2: through the trench as a messenger just must have been excruciating.
0: So he decides he's going to take a risk. He's going to take the shortcut. It's worth his life if he can save someone else's. Gibson's performance here of, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and then he does it. He makes it across, just barely. And again, the physicality of his performance is something that you'll see in every Gibson performance, how he just throws himself into the role, or whether he's dislocating his shoulder in Lethal Weapon 2 and putting it back into play. payback when he's falling on the concrete or the there's a lot of charlie chaplin and mel gibson is how he throws himself around and i don't know if that's conscious or not So who's running like the cheetah now? Who's got to be faster than Archie? Frank's got to be faster than Archie. Just like Frank's running, you've got support crews running through. Got to connect the wires. This scene is just heartbreaking. Everyone has resigned themselves to their fate. And this, this is also one of those things that was very common. Some Australians actually wrote into their diaries the date. And then they wrote, I died. Or I was killed in combat today. Because they knew what was going to happen. It's just sad. And they're waiting for the phone to ring, hoping against all hope. But even though it's absolutely hopeless, we're is pushing it to you. We're is telling you, you know that it's wrong, and I know that it's wrong, and they know that it's wrong, and everybody knows that this is pointless. But it's going to happen anyway. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. And there is no happy ending. There is no good thing to take out of this. There's nothing positive that came out of Gallipoli at all. Guys are hugging each other. It's their last moment on earth. And this, even with the way back, this might be, this might be Weir's best sequence that he's ever shot. Putting their watches and their mementos on their bayonets with letters to their families. Archie hang his dad's stopwatch and his running medal. Because if he gets killed out there, there's no guarantee that they'll ever find his body, or there's no guarantee that stuff will ever make it back. He doesn't even know if anyone's going to be able to mail that back. The people who could mail it back, they might be dead in the fourth wave. Reading from the Book of Psalms More Dust Run like a cheetah. So Weir very deliberately slows down the pace before he speeds up the action. And he's gonna cut out the sound as the bayonets hit the edge of the trench. Here. And here for the first time you see in that shot things from the Turks' point of view cocking back the Webley. This guy just does not want to do it. And they do it. They go over the top. And they die. Gibson's famous scream. And then the freeze frame. Quite possibly the greatest anti-war movie ever. Thanks for hanging out with me while we watched Gallipoli. I hope you found this interesting whether you watched with the commentary on in your home or just listened in your car. The Super 70 podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blog at Davis.com where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 podcast tab. The Super 70 podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her on soundcloud.com. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdylandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdylandavis.com and find my books on Amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and we'll meet next time in the Bronsky Theater.
1: Thank you.